We'll get started in just one minute, but I want to encourage you to go to ctmirror.org events and sign up for our special election preview event on Wednesday, October 21st at 7 p.m. I'll be joined by three very smart friends, Kalila Brown, Dean of Quinnipiac University, who's got a brand new podcast called Disrupted, Liz Karantowicz, a Republican strategist and fundraiser, and Mark Pazniokas, the Mirror's Capitol Bureau Chief. It'll be a wide-ranging conversation about, well, the national mood as we approach Election Day, and you can be there to listen in and ask questions. Please go to ctmirror.org event, and thanks. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of Steady Habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. There have been a lot of gut punches this year, felt by all kinds of people for all sorts of reasons. But of all the industries that are barely hanging on through the COVID pandemic, the performing arts might be taking the biggest blow. Many theaters, playhouses, music clubs, art museums already existed on the thinnest of margins. But then you take away their crowds for a whole year, maybe more. You leave a bunch of unanswered questions about when they can reopen. And if they do, there's also that nagging question, will people even want to come back? Broadway theaters in New York are shut down through May of next year. But for the theater industry, Connecticut's group of prestigious producing theaters is almost as important. Six of those theaters banded together to ask the state for $12 million in CARES Act funding. But this week they learned that the state grants would only total $9 million for the entire arts sector. Jessica Friedman has been writing about this for the Connecticut Mirror. She helps me produce this show, and as you'll hear, she's a big fan of the musical theater. She's been around it her whole life. Now, you might be thinking, we've got bigger issues in the state than musical theater. But take a listen to the economic impact this industry has in Connecticut. And also read Jessica's story at ctmirror.org. She joins me now. Jess, welcome back to Steady Habits. Thanks, John. So let's start, first of all, with these Connecticut theaters that you profiled. These are theaters that are some of the most prestigious in the world, right? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. This is something that I think a lot of people don't know. Um, So Connecticut is actually the state with the second highest total number of regional theater Tony Awards. California is number one, but this is a really interesting fact. You know, New York has many notable regional theaters that aren't considered Broadway, yet they don't have the number two slot. We do. This is because of this group of nonprofit institutions that are referred to as the Connecticut flagship producing theaters. So they're Eugene O'Neill, Goodspeed, Hartford Stage, Long Wharf, Westport Country Playhouse, and the Yale Rep. And, and they've been referred to as, as cultural jewels of Connecticut by no less than, than Senator Richard Blumenthal. I do believe he also went on to say, to risk their demise is utterly irresponsible. So they're a pretty big deal. So tell me more about this, this theater world for people who don't understand very much about it. When you're talking about these regional theaters, how is this different than, say, the, the Warner Theater down the road for me in Torrington or, or the Bushnell in Hartford, which presents an awful lot of Broadway-style shows? So theaters like the Bushnell, uh, they present outside work. So they, you know, provide the stage, they book the act, the act comes in, um, oftentimes from New York. Um, But in Connecticut, these producing theaters, they produce and present. So they spend months, they spend money, they employ Connecticut residents, 
putting together these shows, and then they also present them as well. So it's a pretty big distinction. It's a big distinction in the theater world, but there's also an awful lot of economic impact that comes along with these theaters. Talk about that if you would, Jess. According to Broadway World, these theaters, these six theaters, are directly responsible for about $42 million of direct economic activity to Connecticut. They employ kind of indirectly and directly about 1,700 people. I have a huge payroll. The payroll is about $26 million. Um, so that's that's a big industry. Um, I think sometimes with theater, maybe people just think actors, but this is stage professional stage managers, costume designers, lighting designers, theater admin, uh, technical theater workers. So this is these theaters are like entire ecosystems. And not not to mention the fact that around each and every one of these theaters, there's small restaurants and there's places that employ people specifically because they have people who come to the theater and all of those places are struggling as well. Yeah. So, I mean, in the case of Goodspeed Musicals specifically, they're located in East Haddam. And I mean, the town of East Haddam, it's like a summer destination. People stay at the bed and breakfast, they go to the hotels, you know, they go to the restaurants. So it really, it's an entire economic collapse when you look at the collapse of the theater industry. So you, you profiled these different ecosystems that have struggled during the, the COVID pandemic, but you, you really focused in here on Goodspeed. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about it because I think people know the iconic building. Maybe they've been to Goodspeed musicals, but it really is a very, very specific place that you took a deep dive into. I mean, so I kind of, I wanted to paint these theaters as ecosystems and kind of in the hopes, you know, if you see Goodspeed as one ecosystem, you can see that this is happening sixfold and kind of to every theater um, in our state and in the country. But so Goodspeed is a huge operation. I believe they employ about 70 to 80 year round employees. Um, if, if you work in theater, you know how big of a deal it is to have a full-time job. Um, So that's huge. They employ about 200 artists annually um, that they contract to come in. It's about 40 buildings across two towns. So for an operation this large, essentially to completely shut down overnight and to not have a clear roadmap forward, it's a really big deal. Um, So to kind of get the full picture, we have to go back to March. So to do that, here is Erica Gilroy, Goodspeed's production manager. The weekend before before uh, the state closed down, which was on, um, you know, that March 16th, 17th dates, uh, we were actually set to do a concert on our stage. So the weeks leading up to that, it was, do we, do we set it up? Do we strike it? Do we, you know, so we we're trying to get our team moving forward as much as possible with the understanding that if a pause had to happen, hopefully we would be back to work, you know, in a month or something, you know, so everything keep moving. March 16th, which was a Monday, was the day before first rehearsal. And on that day, it's traditional often for the director and set designer to come into town, do some subgrouping around campus, uh, sort of talking through, meeting with the different departments. As I, in the background, went around with senior management and figured out that at five o'clock that day, we were sending everyone home. We didn't want to interrupt their process because we knew that, you know, this the show had already been mostly built and we were going to continue with it, whether it was a pause or not. So it would be better to everyone just kind of keep moving forward. And then starting in the afternoon at around three o'clock, I started to visit every department and tell them that at five o'clock, they're stopping what they're doing and they're going home. And we are going to be working from home uh, for at least the the week we're not doing first rehearsal the next day and that we would get back to everyone and it's sort of uh, at five o'clock everyone left and we haven't been back. So to talk a little bit more about 
this kind of internal collapse is Donna Lynn Hilton. She's a producer at Goodspeed. She's worked there for 33 years. She started in the props department. She tells me gluing pom-poms um, and now she's pretty much second in command. So here's what Donna Lynn had to say. You know, we know that we did the right thing to lock down when we did and to remain in that state, but um, it's just devastating. The work that has been lost and the future is really terribly unclear for our industry as it is for so many others. Um, and we are not essential. I mean, I think we are, but to to government, we're not essential. And so it's really helpful, actually, that you're having this conversation with us and shining a light on what I will say is the plight of the producing theaters just right here in Connecticut. Um, we may not be able to get back to work treated like every other business. Um, and it's not going to come back immediately. There's no way. I mean, people's people's lives, our staff's lives, the lives of the artists that we support and that we had planned to employ in 2020 and beyond, their lives have been altered in a way that cannot be reversed. The hard part for um, the staff uh, that is that this impact on our industry is industry-wide. So you 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 can't just go to a different job. Um, the the crisis really is that you have to change your career in order to sort of find employment if you can't wait it out or hang on until we get back to work. It's not like you can go and work for another theater. But I have employees that have devoted their lives to specialize their craft into doing this very specific kind of art form. And yes, those skills can get applied to other things, but it's a little you know, building clothes for regular people is different than building clothes for a, a theatrical production where it has to get washed every day and has to, you know, be able to have, you know, we do musicals, so everything has to be danced and has to have the proper gussets in it for movement. It's just it's a different specific craft. It's also a craft that we we did training for. We went to school for, you know, we have student loans because we said this was our career path. You know, there's there was jobs out there to be had for it. You pay the money to get trained for it. And then all of a sudden you're faced with that crisis of there's no one, you know, you don't have this job anymore. There's no one hiring for what you have devoted your life and your training to do. And so it's not so easy just to pick up and have a new job. That was Erica Gilroy again. Um, I think what Gilroy is saying is is really the most tragic part about all of this. I think, you know, it's so much more than just the actors, right? As I had said, I'm not sure if people think about the human impact here. These are people who, you know, as I said, if they work at any of these six theaters, that's a huge deal. They're at the absolute top of the field, which as we know, is it's a difficult field. So overnight, the profession is just gone. Um, you know, the restaurant industry, hotels, airlines, we know these other industries have also been severely, you know, impacted by the pandemic, but those industries aren't gone. Um, and this one is. This one is basically, it's basically shut down. There's no way to have the sort of theater that they've had before. All the restaurants have figured out some way perhaps to, you know, open up outside. You can't do that with a theater like Goodspeed. Yeah, exactly. So I also spoke to Jen Thompson, who she's an extremely, extremely impressive director, a very, very lengthy resume. She's worked at Goodspeed before. So she was set to direct Anne of Green Gables for them, which is a new musical. Um, And here's what Jen had to say about how she's doing with all of this. All the shows that I have, pretty much all the shows that I had on the calendar for this year are pushed now to next year. But a lot of them 
are cast and designed. So there isn't, at least right now, a lot of work to be done. We'll see if, if all of the casting stays and sticks, if we're back, when we're back. There's just so much in the air. Um, and I have some new stuff that's tentatively scheduled. So I'm starting just the beginning, starting to work on it. But I must confess that I am just personally having a hard time on theater stuff because it's, I think it's too painful, to be honest. I sort of feel like I've compartmentalized that a little bit and had, I've done what I've had to do. And there's been some stuff that's been due and, but I haven't, there are a lot of people around me that are creating all this stuff on zoom and doing all these things. And it just, I have not been motivated or moved to do that. Jess, it's interesting what she's saying about some of her colleagues moving onto virtual platforms because we've seen that happen. A lot of the arts have adapted in this way. I've watched jazz and rock concerts that were supposed to happen in front of people that have been streamed live. But what she's saying is that that world of a Zoom performance just isn't what she wants to do. No, and it's, it's really difficult. You can understand. I mean, a lot of these theaters are engaging in virtual programming because, you know, they have to, they feel the obligation to. But it's it's hard to kind of stay competitive because theater on a screen is TV and movies. Now, you've been talking a lot about people who are working at the very top of their profession. Goodspeed is bringing in top-level talent, producers, directors, actors. But you also spoke with people who, you know, are a little bit more at the beginning of their career. Yeah, so in speaking to Jen and hearing um, how she's struggling, I think you kind of get there is no mobility in this industry at the top. So you can imagine how difficult it is if you're working your way up to the top. It's just not possible to do right now. So in the article that's currently up on CT Mirror, I talk about the difficult road to Broadway. You know, these six flagship producing theaters have sent hundreds of shows to Broadway. In the case of Goodspeed, they've sent 21 productions to Broadway. That's a huge deal. And it's a long road to Broadway. But you know, let's talk about the road to Goodspeed. That one is not easy either. Every year, Goodspeed produces new works. Uh, this year, actually, they were going to un- unveil a super cool new series for 2020 called The Worklight Project. They're going to actively workshop three new musicals. Um, and getting one of those three slots is a huge deal. So this is a pretty interesting story about one of them, a new musical called Johnny and the Devil's Box. I was born back in the mountain. <laughs> Not a nickel to my name But when I start to fiddle it'll put them all to shame So the musical and the book is written by a young writer named Douglas Waterbury Teeman. He also plays Johnny. That's him. You can hear on the track singing and playing the fiddle. Very impressive. Um, So his kind of road to good speed started all the way back in 2015, where he meets Donna Lynn Hilton, uh, the producer who we heard earlier at a writer's retreat, in a complete, total chance encounter as... That's kind of how any business works. That's especially how this one works. Um, So... Sometime later on, he hears about this very prestigious program that Goodspeed runs in their off-season called the Johnny Mercer Writers' Colony, where writers are able to develop new works. Um, So that's a super prestigious program. After establishing that connection with Donalyn two years prior, he applies, gets into the 2017 program. Uh, And in 2017, they were workshopping 18 new musicals. Again, there's only three spots for 2020. So... 
over the next two years after he does uh, the program, he hears kind of the rumblings, Goodspeed wants to produce your show. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and then in 2019, he hears Goodspeed has picked Johnny and the Devil's Box for one of three shows for their Worklight project for their 2020 season. Um, and this isn't even the beginning. You know, in the before the musical even goes to Goodspeed, Tiemann is spending months getting the musical ready with workshops and readings. So this takes us right up to the beginning of the pandemic. Here's Douglas Waterbury, Tiemann. March 2020, the, uh, everything started to fall apart, as we know. Um, as this as this virus um, swelled and and started just to you know do its thing, and um, so a couple of weeks later, got the really really uh, sad phone call from Donald Ann, um to say that that uh, we they would be postponing canceling slash postponing the the entire New Work series. A little later, uh, you know, it became apparent that okay, well now good speed would love to produce Johnny and the Devil's Box as their first main, main stage show of 2021 to reopen the Opera House. And that was just, you know, it was, it was hope. So to quickly recap, uh, Tiemann hears that the 2020 season is canceled, but he has this connection to Goodspeed. They really support him. They believe in his musical. They believe in him. So they decide that they're going to use it to open the 2021 season. So Tiemann and his wife, uh, who is also a performer, they made the decision, the difficult decision, like a lot of young performers do. Uh, they left New York at the beginning of the pandemic to move to Nashville. But they were only planning on being there for a few months. They were planning on coming back to Connecticut in time for Goodspeed. Um, but as the months go on, the industry takes a sharp downward turn and Tiemann uh, receives some bad news. Uh, honestly, just before we moved, did get, have to get the other pretty heartbreaking call. Just, just, you know, the reality is that um, Goodspeed's um, financial future is, you know, as all theaters are, uh, has to be very, very careful. And so it, it was decided upon by the board, as I understand it, that next year needs to just be two shows. And because because of the nature of a new musical and contracts and all those types of things, um, Johnny will not be produced at good speed in, in 2021. Jess, that story, it just, it makes you so incredibly sad. Somebody who's worked so hard to see their work realized and they've put all their eggs in this basket and now they get this news that the pandemic is essentially shutting down their production. One of the things I find interesting though about your story is this guy's actually pretty upbeat, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that has been kind of the glimmer of hope in all of this, um, that theater people are hopeful people. Um, as Tiemann explains. Well, you know, we believe in a dream. I don't think anybody gets, you know, chooses to pursue theater, you know, <laughs> really seriously without just having a dream of, of what what can occur on stage between an audience and those um, in front of the lights. And um, and so that, that type of hope is really apparent, has been really apparent through all of the aspects of this really really terrible season that are that we're going through in so many different ways. So like Tiemann says, these theaters are in a really pretty terrible financial situation. To kind of walk us through that a little bit better is Michael Gennaro, the executive director at Goodspeed. The loss to the theaters in terms of dollars is millions and millions of dollars. It's over $6 million to Goodspeed alone. And um, 
the other probably most difficult part of this is the amount of staff that have been either laid off or furloughed. And in our case, it's um, well over 80 people were furloughed and probably 20 or more have been laid off. And that will probably change because the people that we furloughed are um, obviously have been collecting unemployment and we're collecting the $600 supplement, which now we've all been told is going to be $300 for three weeks. And all of that unemployment for all the theaters is going to run out probably before the end of the calendar year. And that's going to be tragic. Um, so there's just hundreds of people that we employ on a continuing basis that are, are going to be out of work. And the reason that we reached out to the state was um, obviously the state got a lot of money for the CARES Act, um, over $1 billion. But, you know, the needs that the state has to address for, you know, hospitals and social services, I mean, it's mind boggling and it, it's well over $3 billion. But I think we wanted to make sure that at least we were heard, we were at the table. Um, it's not like we're, we're definitely not looking for a bailout. We're looking for relief funding. So here is Kit Ngui. She's the managing director at Long Wharf in New Haven. And she explains why these theaters need that funding. The state cannot expect people to keep six institutions alive without support during a year when they're unable to really do their work. Um, and so as the cultural jewels of this state, um, as I believe the organizations, the art form most adept at building bridges in our crumbling infrastructure of humanity right now, um, telling the stories that can bridge some of that divide, the state needs to support us. We bet, I mean, we, we need their support. And Gui touches on something kind of really valuable there that I don't want to overlook. Um, theater is an art form that can build bridges. It can really unite people in a way that very, very few things can, um, as we've seen. Over the past seven months, um, the division in our country has quite obviously gotten much, much worse. And I think we kind of need all the help that we can get. Um, and when we do make it to the other side of the pandemic, we will need healing. This is Erica Gilroy, the Goodspeed production manager, again, kind of explaining that theater heals. You're having that bad day or you're about to ask for a promotion or something. What do you do? You turn on a piece of music. You you watch a movie about someone overcoming a great challenge. You know, you have that because you, you, you need that. You crave it. Um, and whenever there's a need for it, those of us... Um, that have devoted our lives to fulfilling that need, we'll find a way to do it. It just may not look how it did before. So as Gilroy says, you know, we really can't overlook the healing powers that theater has and the lessons that it teaches us and how vital they are specifically in our current political climate. So as she said in the beginning, Goodspeed shut down one day before they were going to start rehearsals for South Pacific. Um, And it's the musical that they intend to use to kick off their next season whenever they can have that. Um, and the messages in South Pacific are there as relevant as ever today. Um, South Pacific was written in 1949, um, but there's a song in it that speaks to prejudice and hatred in a way that is not so different from kind of what we're seeing today. You've got to 
be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught. So the song they're singing, uh, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, it was widely criticized by politicians in the South in the 1950s who thought the message of the song was blasphemous because it promoted um, an interracial relationship in South Pacific. They thought it ruined the show, um, that politics had no place in the theater. And we're almost 70 years later, and we obviously still need to hear those messages and the lessons that South Pacific teaches us. And we have to recognize that these theaters provide us with so much more than just entertainment. Um, this industry was the first to shut down. It's going to be one of the last to come back. And we have to do what we need to do as a state to make sure that the curtain rises on all six of these stages. I want to give the last word here to Donna Lynn Hilton, producer at Goodspeed. Just a, a little help would get us through. A little help to, to get us through because we may not all make it through. If that's okay with people, well, then they make that choice. But I, it's not okay with me. I want a community, a region, a state that values the arts. And based on what exists here in Connecticut now, I think most of the residents of the state do as well. Well, Jess, here's hoping that um, Connecticut's theaters, all of them, these six that you profile, of course, good speed, but all of the theaters and all the presenting companies around the state are able to open again sometime soon. It might not be till mid-2021 or so, but I think it's going to be really important for, for the state to make a full comeback. So thanks so much for spending some time telling us about what's going on with this really important industry. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. You can read Jessica's story at ctmirror.org. Next week, we'll take a look at another struggling industry, restaurants. I hope you can join us. And remember to sign up for our election preview Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Go to ctmirror.org events. Hope to see you there on Zoom. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, Kyle Constable, Jess Friedman, and Kira Goldenberg. Our Steady Beats are by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson and were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk to you soon.